Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Den Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com. You guys go to denanywhere.com now, no matter where you live in the world, and you can take our classes virtually and live. Go to denanywhere.com and sign up for just $29.99 a month. You get a limited access to our classes with over 150 a month to choose from. Plus, most of them are archived. So if you can't make the exact time, you can catch them later. We still also have our workshops and our certifications now all accessible to you no matter where you are. Go to denanywhere.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. We are here with Tracy Stanley today. We've had her on before, but she wrote a beautiful book called Radiant Rest that is all about yoga nidra. Anyone who's you know, participated with the Den comes to the Den knows we always have yoga nidra practices um, and they are incredible. And what I love is sometimes we talk about it as kind of like a beautiful rest, like a yogic nap, which she will beautifully correct why that is not appropriate and how much more is happening while you get to do this incredible practice. So I love talking about this today because I think it's so helpful. You realize that anybody can integrate yoga nidra, or at the very least, what you will get from this is just how important kind of the relaxation is for your body. Um, But it's really fascinating. What I love is we really talk about when you do a yoga nidra practice, how you go through these different states of consciousness. And within those different states, different basically information or awareness or lack thereof, which actually helps you go deeper, is what comes about. And how people like Einstein and Thomas Edison actually used to set themselves up in these naps, quote unquote, and wake themselves up right when they would fall asleep by either like a spoon dropping or some metal so that they could then, because they started to become aware of the nectar of those moments, of understanding that in those moments, the creativity that would blossom, the information that they would get. And so I love this discussion of how important and how magical this practice is and how beautiful. Plus, Tracy is just one of the kindest, sweetest, most amazing presence ever. So to have her always on here, I feel like, is such a gift to me and to the community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Let us know. Go to our you know, Facebook page. Always drop a line, Dent Talks Podcast. Also, please leave us a review. It is so helpful when you leave a review or share with your friends. Um, I've had a few comments from people saying this has been really helpful during the pandemic, which makes me so happy. So if you can share that with others, that would always be great. Enjoy the episode. so happy to talk to you. I'm happy to see your face. I'm happy like to catch up. And I'm so proud of you because I know you've been birthing this book for quite a while. And I am just so proud of you. It's really amazing. And I feel like it's going to be used for like as a textbook for those. I mean, anyone can read it. Let me just preface now so people don't get confused. Anybody can read this. Anyone who's just looking for more rest and relaxation can read this and we'll get so much out of it. But what I thought was so brilliantly done about it, and we will talk about that, 
it, you did you did angle it towards people like that. Anyone could read and be like, this is what I need. This is the type of meditation I need, this type of relaxation I need. And you organize it in such an incredibly easy way to digest. However, there's so much beautiful information. And I feel like you so easily, which is not easy to do, you so um, easily handled in a way where you literally targeted future teachers, people who want to learn it, or just kind of Joshima who's just curious and might want a little more rest. I think that is a really hard thing to do. And you did it so seamlessly. And so mm. I do feel like this is going to kind of become like a textbook for people who are actually teaching or learning Yoga Nidra in a more serious way. I feel like this, because I think what it also does for someone who might want to teach is also shows them how to teach it for people who might just be using it for like a householder or just the idea of just self-care. Thank you for acknowledging that um, because that was really my intention, you know, in, in writing it. Um, and it was the publisher who came to me to ask me if I was be, would be interested in writing it. And I had to really think about who might pick up the book hmm. and I knew that in other books that I had read that and maybe suggested to other students um, or friends of mine, sometimes they found them a little bit too dense and they couldn't relate. And so they, I feel like they kind of maybe missed out on a little bit of the magic that was in the book and in the practices. So I tried to segment it in ways where um, thinking about the teacher um, who was likely going to pick up the book and want to look at the scripts and just be led down a road to, you know, find more resources for a deeper study and people who just didn't have a lot of time. And to be honest, the people who don't have a lot of time, the householders, right, that are raising families and have jobs, especially now that we're in this time of lockdown, um, we have so many extra jobs, whether it's school teacher or house cleaner or all the things that need to get done, um, that that seems to make up the majority of people that I come in contact with is limited amount of time, but this huge desire to want to practice and to have a dedicated and devoted practice. So it was really important for me to speak to um, just the householder and create some sort of a flow so that people would be able to weave the practice throughout their day, um, as opposed to setting aside 45 minutes to be able to do a practice every day. I mean, I love that. You and I talked a little bit about this when you were on the podcast last time about the idea of making a practice easier for yourself and taking the pressure off. But I thought you did such a good job in this book. And I love the story that you told about how you were doing, was it a training? And one, how you were doing a training. And at the end, you were talking about incorporating, you know, this practice for 40 days so people can really kind of have that final, you know, really get it into your system. And how one guy was just scoffing and you kind of called him out. You're like, are you nervous? You're not going to be able to do this practice. He's like, there's no way. I think he was a stay at home single dad, possibly. No, he actually was. He was a stay at home dad of a couple, but the wife was worked, like, worked all the time and, he and they had five kids. Five and he was just, and it was funny because I felt like as opposed to me calling him out, I felt like he, he was calling me out because he was looking at me like, what's wrong what with are you? you talking about? Right. Like that's never going to happen. And at the same time, I really felt like he had this deep yearning 
to be able to do this practice and to receive it. And, you know, he just said, look, it's, it's taken everything for me to just be here for one day for three hours to take this class. And so that was when I just kind of paused everybody and said, okay, let's just reframe what it means to practice, because we have this idea in our mind that in order for us to have a practice that's worthy of anything, it means that we have to sit down and we've got to close our eyes or do whatever it is for an hour a day, every day without, you know, any kind of interruption. Um, And so I really, that was when I kind of introduced my own philosophy of how I was weaving my practice through my days, especially when I was working full-time. And people were like, oh, okay, I get it now. I can actually take little three-minute meditations or little three-minute yoga nidras or three-minute deep relaxations a couple of times throughout my day to let that be the thing that weaves throughout my day. And I'm still practicing. I think that's so huge. I think it's so huge because I've been that guy in trainings before. We're like, what's like said? And I'm like, what? And it's true. You you nailed it on the head. It comes from this like desperation almost of like, I can't, I want to be able to do that, but like, I can't, like I'm up early with the kid and then I have work, whatever it is, everyone has their own thing. And usually we've created our own energetic spin of that too, which makes it even harder to incorporate because our brain has already told us a million times it's never going to happen. So it's, I've been there and it's so true. And I feel like the only time I've had success is when I've reframed from the help of other people of like, oh yeah, probably a minute a day is better than zero minutes a day. And so many people get so hung up on this perfect practice that usually you fall off because of that, because something comes up and you can't do it. And so then you're like, well, now it's, it's done. It's over. I messed up. Yeah. And there's a teacher by the name of Rolf Sovic, um, who has a teaching that you, you kind of leave your yoga mat. And I would even say your yoga nidra nest or your meditation cushion set up. And if you know on that day that you really want to sit down, but you can't, you just take a moment and touch the cushion Ooh. or touch the yoga mat to say, I, I really want to be here. And today, this is my practice of just acknowledging this space. And I plan on coming back tomorrow. I love that. Because it just keeps it, again, it keeps a flow because it is so true. It's like anything, diets, whatever. It's like when you feel like I have to do this, the minute you have that bag of potato chips, you're like, well, what's the point? So now I'm just going to eat like crap the whole time, you know, versus, okay, it's fine. You had it, but like, keep, it can be just a, a flow. And you do say that you call it like three to five minute relationship with the practice, yeah. which I think is what's such a distinction. Yeah, you're building you're building a relationship. You're building, you know, the the practices according to um the text should be done consistently, right? And the reason one of the reasons why they should be done consistently is because they accumulate. So the power of the practice and the efficacy of the practice accumulates over time. So if you can't practice for 1 hour every day or 30 minutes every day, but you can practice for three minute increments three times a day. That might be better than getting to practice two hours, two consecutive days, and then completely falling off and not doing another practice for another few days. 
right? Everybody so it just hear makes that. it more accessible. For, <laughs> it makes it more accessible for, for us. Yeah, um, for most people, especially like you said, during this pandemic, it's hard. It's, it's some people have more time for sure. And others, it's it's trickier because your time is being pulled in different directions. But anyway, I thought it was great. And I will restate to those listening that that the book is, it's it has those options very clearly out there, which I love that you can kind of flip through and find stuff that works for you in whatever time it is you have. And you're really great about guiding people through hey, if you need to do this shorter version, this is how you do it. Like you're not even leaving that up to someone's imagination of like, wait, but what does she mean? Three minutes, this many times, like, what does that mean? So what am I doing? Like, which I think is what happens because then people feel like there's one perfect thing you have to do, but you really walk everyone through it very clearly. So there's no doubts. Anyone can do this. So let's talk about Yoga Nidra, which you've been a queen of Yoga Nidra, which I love. So I love that you finally wrote the book. Um, talk about for you why, as a practice, this is what stood out for you or became your practice. Mm. Well, it was really simple, honestly. You know, almost 20 years ago, um, one of my first teachers, Brad Stryker, told us to lie down and didn't tell us what we were doing. I just thought, oh, we're going to do Shavasana. And he started to guide us through this practice. And I felt this sense of peace that and stillness and also this sense of what just happened. Where did I go? <laughs> right. That I had never felt before. Um, I had felt a piece of it after an hour and 15 minute long yoga class. And then, you know, lying down in Shavasana for 10 minutes and the body just surrenders because you know, you've done all the work, but to just lie down without having any preparation of breath or um, asana prior and to become, it, it, and to be in a place that was so deep so quickly that had this kind of um, after effect so it wasn't just what was happening in the practice. It was after the practice. It was like that sense of stillness and peace just carried with me for hours and hours afterwards. So I just kept coming back because I loved that practice so much. Um, and then what I started to notice as my career started to um, become more busy as a film executive and working 18 hour days and doing night shoots and all the things that I would turn to yoga nidra and meditation as a way to stay rested, to stay clear, and to really allow myself to have that inner stillness that allowed me to kind of be the calm in the midst of all the storms that were happening. So that was really why I've kept it um, as a practice, a central practice for so long, because it's just been an invaluable tool. So, and talk about kind of this misconception. I mean, so yoga nidra, like you said, it's lying down traditionally, but you also say in the book, look, do what works for you. If you need to stand up, stand up, but it's lying down. It brings you into this deep state of relaxation and we'll go into kind of more details of that. You know, some people kind of call it like the yogic nap, like a way to kind of re-energize yourself, but talk about the difference of actually sleeping versus during yoga nidra. Yeah, so it's really not a nap. <laughs> yoga Nidra, um, a lot of times when we think about Yoga Nidra, we think of the technique of Yoga Nidra, which is this 
systematic deep relaxation, but yoga nidra is also a state of consciousness. And that state of consciousness is very similar to samadhi, right? Yoga nidra is also a goddess that's written about in the Devi Mahatma. So we have to take all of those aspects of what yoga nidra really is and to understand that it's actually more than a nap because you're not actually sleeping, even though it refers to or can be translated as yoga, the yogic sleep, the word nidra is also um, comes from two words, ni and dru. So ni means void and dru means to draw forth. So when we, what comes forth from the void is really kind of what I was talking about, this sense of peace and stillness, and also this other thing that can't be named, which is the almost like, where did I go? What just happened to me? I know something happened, but I don't know what. Um, and I think that the thing to reframe is that when you're practicing yoga nidra, the body itself may fall asleep. The mind might fall asleep, but the consciousness stays awake and aware. So it's not about us laying down to fall asleep and to fall into kind of a dark sleep, like a nap or a sleep that we would do at night. It's really the sleep that allows you to awaken to the truth of who you really are. So talk about that when you're saying your body might actually be asleep, but your consciousness is awake. So talk about that versus when your body's asleep at night, what happens? Yeah, so think about... Um, the, the intention of yoga nidra is that we remain awake and aware through all of the transitions. The transition between waking and dreaming, between dreaming and sleeping, and between the deep sleep state and moving into this place of what's called the fourth oratoria. And so if you're sleeping at night, most of the time you're not aware that you're sleeping right? You wake up in the morning and you know that you have been sleeping. You're not aware that you're sleeping when you're asleep, right? But when you're practicing yoga nidra, you are moving into a place where your, your consciousness knows that you're sleeping. So maybe the, the thing that people might remember or have had an experience of is being in shavasana or being in yoga nidra and realizing that, oh, the person next to me is snoring. And then going, oh, wait a second, that's me snoring, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's that there's a part of you that is awake that is hearing the body snoring. And that's the same part of you that is being asked to stay awake and aware. Now, how often when someone starts the practice, like if they're in a guided yoga nidra, how often, <clears throat> excuse me, is someone actually falling asleep? Like, does it happen a lot in the beginning? Do people actually fall asleep? Is there a practice to kind of this beautiful, you know, area? Yeah, I mean, there's there's really this space of what's called hypnagogia, which is the space between waking and sleeping. And it's kind of that liminal space that is just almost like you're floating, 
And that's the place that when you do more and more yoga nidra, that you kind of train yourself to be able to hover in that space Mm -hmm. and not to fall into the darkness of sleep. So being able to do that is something that usually comes with a lot of um, practice and it's, it's totally normal that sometimes when we go into a practice of yoga nidra, we're used to falling asleep when we're lying down. And so it's almost like a samskara that, oh, I'm lying down, so I'm going to fall asleep now. Um, there are things that you can do. You can bend your elbow and let your elbow rest on the floor, your hand raised um, so that when you're going through the, being guided, if your arm starts to fall, it will it will wake you up and it'll keep you, it'll keep you awake. The other thing is just working with um, the sankalpa of, I will stay awake and aware. My consciousness will stay awake and aware. And hopefully the person who's guiding you is also aware of the fact that you might fall asleep. So they may also be reminding you in their instruction that you're awake and aware, right? They may use their voice in a way that, um, helps you to kind of stay alert in some way, but there's no, um, you know, bad grade if you fall asleep in yoga nidra. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There's no bad grade. Um, talk about because I thought it was so fascinating. I loved how you said that there is magic in that in between state where you can get so much from it. So I would love for you to talk about the benefits because you talk about how like Einstein and Edison. I forget which one used to literally nap and like trick themselves with like a spoon or something so that if they fell asleep, kind of what you're talking about, you can do in the arm for practice. They would put themselves for a nap and then have like a spoon fall or something. So the clanking would wake them up because there's something about what happens. They were very aware that there's so much magic in that moment. There is magic in the transition. Um, I don't know that we can say scientifically what's in there. (laughs) But we do know that it's a void and the void is both empty and full, right? So it's full of knowledge. It's full of wisdom. um, And it's also empty. And that's that emptiness is also potential and creativity. There's, there's so much there. Um, And it's also a moment where the mind has an ability to kind of almost wipe itself clean and receive wisdom from somewhere else that we don't know where it comes from. Um, The transition is also maybe like a little yoga nidra, a little turiya for a moment. Um, And then when we come out of that, um, I think what what they were practicing, what I is what I would call the smirti sadhana um, in the book is this, this practice of remembering, right? Is writing down, or drawing or creating or writing poetry right after that, the moment of coming out of um, the yoga nidra practice. So you can capture and remember the magic. So for you, like moments that you've come out and have either gone to writing, like anything stand out for you that you remember being like, wow, like it, it, it maybe 30 years ago, you wouldn't <clears throat> think that would even be you. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the book was written in that way. A lot of the book was written in that way. And so my um, my creative room where I was doing my writing had my harmonium. It had my yoga nidra nests 
set up and it had my desk. And so I would write. And then if I felt like I was getting stuck or lacking creativity, I would go and lay down, do a yoga nidra, and then I would come up and I would start writing. Um, so, so many things came from that um, experience of using yoga nidra as a portal to more creativity. Um, you know, the, the name Radiant Rest came from that. You know, I, I, I was asked by the publisher to come up with a couple of names for the book and they were all very kind of, you know, um, yoga nidra uh, for blank. Yeah. They, yoga nidra for this or for that. <laughs> And, and it seemed very, and it's like, this, this doesn't, this is coming from my mind. My intellect is trying to come up with something like really clever for the title. Let me lie down and let me receive the grace of yoga nidra, or at least the grace of the practice and see what arises. And so I lay down, I came up, I wrote three or four things that had come forward and radiant rest was one of them. And I really didn't think too much of like, oh, that's the one. And when the publisher read what I had written for the titles or suggested, they were like, oh, this is the one. We love this. So I don't know that I would have come up with that had I just been thinking about it. Have you, so when you talk about kind of the sankalpa, which is like setting an intention for the practice. So for that practice, when you went down, did you set the intention to come up with a title? I did. I did. I just, I said, and it wasn't me. So I took myself out of the equation. I just said, I would love to receive a title. I would love to receive the perfect title for, for, for this book. That's so, I love it. I love that magic. And talk about a little bit of, um, you know, just the awareness that you can get from this practice too, because there's a beautiful line that I love a quote that you have from the Bhagavad Gita, which is, and I'll read it so I don't totally mess it up. It says, what all beings considers as day is the night of ignorance for the wise. And what all creatures see as night is the day for the introspective sage, mm. which really spoke to me because I love it. Because I feel like I've been, you know, talking a lot about just, you know, coming out of solstice and, you know, finally being on the East coast with the seasons again. And after so long and really kind of feeling this idea of just going inward and this darkness and the slowness that is so naturally there, but in LA, I missed a little bit of, because you have to really go out of your way to kind of connect to that rhythm. Cause it's not yeah. so overtly there versus here. It's kind of hugs you and walks you through it a little bit more. So I've definitely been feeling that idea of the wisdom that kind of can come through the darkness, but talk a little bit about that in relation also to yoga Nidra. Well, that's exactly what you, what we're talking about is we create and foster a relationship with the unknown when we do a practice that is moving us towards uh, the void, because the void is a place of, that could be uncertain. We can maybe be scared of it. Um, it's unknown, but when we trust that we are actually supported and that we practice kind of receiving the magic that's in that space, we know that the waking world, a lot of the waking world can be an illusion, especially because we're so tied to trying to get external things to validate us, right? The more that we go inward, the more that we bring our awareness in and we practice pratyahara, the withdrawal of the senses, and we move closer into that, that void space, um, there's so much fullness there, which really is the place where we can touch our true nature. 
and touching our true nature and tasting our true nature is, I think, one of the the main goals of, of life. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because everyone, you know, everyone would think it's so overt, like, oh, it's my true nature. I'm in it every single day, but we're often not even close to it. No, I mean, if most people, if I know if one, if someone were to ask me, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, who are, who are you? My answer to that would have been identified with, uh, you know, probably my job, what I was doing at the time, it would have nothing to do with the eternal light that burns inside of me. Isn't it so interesting? I, I think I might've told you this story. I don't know, but I know I've said it on this podcast before, how when I stopped working in entertainment and I wasn't sure, I knew I needed a break. So I was not going back. I wasn't taking any jobs. And one of my favorite things I used to love to do to just play with people because, you know, we're in Los Angeles. There is a certain, you know, if there's anywhere that's defined by what you do, it's there and people really struggle. I've never struggled with that. I've never defined myself by my job. So for me, it was actually very easy to kind of be like, oh no, I'm taking a break. That it didn't weigh on me so much as far as an identity thing. But I noticed other people really struggled with that, even though it was me. And so one of my favorite things to do at a social engagement would be like, you know, the first thing out of everyone's mouth would be like, what do you do? And my response would just be like, nothing. And I wouldn't follow it up with anything because, you know, most people would be like nothing but, or I used to, or, you know, I, these yes. are all this, you know, I developed yeah. all these shows and worked with these people, but now I'm just like, there would always be a qualifier. So people knew that they were okay. Like, look at everything I've done. Trust me. I am someone, but my favorite thing to do would just be like nothing. Yeah. And then I would love to watch how that would actually really make other people struggle. The idea of me not giving them something of what I was as far as a job made them actually really struggle with how to identify with me. Do you know what I mean? It was really well, interesting. I, I know exactly what you mean because I used to do something very similar <laughs> when when I was actually producing and I also was teaching yoga at the same time. You know, we were lucky and privileged enough to be able to fly first class or fly private or whatever. And whoever I was sitting next to would always 100% always ask. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with like, there's a black woman that's sitting in first class. What, what do you, what is it that you do? How, how is this possible? And I would look at them and I would say, Oh, I teach yoga. And that, and literally the, the face would be like, what, I don't understand what, how, what do you mean? Um, and most of the time that was really because I didn't want to get into a conversation about <laughs> what you actually or did. What this yes. or, yeah. It's like, I didn't want to talk about it. And so, yes, we identify and validate and give people value based on everything from their skin color to what country they were born in, to what job they do, to how much money they make, to which car they drive. And all of that is the illusion. All of that is the thing that's in the waking state that we could say is um, the place of ignorance as you just talked about in that Bhagavad Gita quote. And it's really when we draw our awareness inside and we shut out the, the light of all the shiny things that we really get to taste what's real. It is so true. And it's so interesting how much <clears throat> is defined by that outside stuff. Just the shame, the definition, it's really 
hard. And I can only imagine people are probably really struggling right now too, as so many people were shifted into re-identifiers. It's like, hi, you don't have your job anymore. Hi, you can't pay rent here anymore. So you're not going to live here anymore. Hi, you might have to live with your family or with three people you didn't expect to have to live with. It's like identity, I think, has been really fucked with. And I think in an actually good way. I mean, it doesn't mean it feels good, but I think it is hopefully shifting for people that none of that really is your identity. You know, it's circumstance. It's you know, a fact of where you might live at the moment, but none of it is identity of who you truly are. Um, but I could only imagine people are really struggling right now, having to figure out how to find that internal calm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's why these practices are so important right now. And, you know, there's different levels of, um, recognizing and being able to deal with the, with transition. Um, because, you know, some of these transitions that people are facing are life and death. You know, they're, they're like, I'm in a house with an abuser or I can't feed my kids or whatever the case may be. So we have to acknowledge that. But at the same time, the transition is the same transition. So just in a bigger sense, the same transition that we were in, that we're, we found ourselves in kind of waiting for COVID to end right? Like everybody was kind of waiting, oh, it's going to be a couple of months. Mm -hmm. It's like we're in a transition. That's the same type of transition that happens when you're in yoga nidra. It's Mm -hmm. that same uncertainty, that same darkness, that same fear of the unknown. And so practice helps us to be able to, um, I think, navigate when we find ourselves in these bigger transitions. And we, this last um, year and coming into 2021 has all been about major transition and not knowing. Yes. I think that people have found that in um, the larger sense of waiting for COVID or waiting to see what's going to happen, waiting to see who the president was going to be, waiting to see what's going to happen with the inauguration. All of these things were waiting And it's like what we do in that space of transition is really important. What we think about, what intentions we set, what practices we do while we're in the unknown is really important because I believe that those things get amplified in that space. So meaning, this is actually an interesting question because one thing I wanted to ask you was, is the mindset you go into to do a practice like this? Because you are entering... Does, is the mindset important? Yes, the mindset is important. The mindset is important. What you what you place, so let's think about the idea of a transition or a void is a vacuum as well. Nature abhors a vacuum. So you something is going to fill that space unconsciously if you don't fill it with something. If there's not a practice happening, right? If there's not, uh, just a, uh, an intention, um, not to say that you have to bring the intention actually into the actual practice, but before you start the practice, that you're just grateful, that you're just devoted to the practice. You're making a prayer, a petition, an offering of some kind. It's not, that's why it's not a nap. <laughs> 
But that's actually really interesting. So talk to people who might be like, well, I had the worst day. I was so, I'm so angry. So I'm not going to do yoga nidra now because I don't want to go into it and bring, talk about that of like, no, you can still do yoga nidra. Just, you know what I mean? Just so people feel comfortable that they're not bringing all this negativity or this type of vibration yeah. into their practice. Yeah. You can, you can just say a prayer for yourself and ask that you find peace, that you find stillness that you find comfort, that you allow yourself to be supported. You allow yourself to know that you can trust the earth beneath you to support you, that you can bring your ancestors and your guides and your who, whomever your benevolent beloveds are that, are that are maybe no longer on this plane anymore, whether it's even your, your crystals or your sacred objects around you as a form of protection. So this is something that we have to do every every day. And um, little by little, the more we practice, the more we have our own um, kind of ritual around practice and when to practice and what to ask for. It's, you know, even just that prayer alone is, I feel like, an unbelievable practice of just shifting who you are because you know, I think if someone's in such a negative headspace, which happens, I mean, that's life. Sometimes you're stuck in it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, if you can somehow start creating even that prayer, even that ask of just even allowing yourself to think for a second, there's a connection. Um, I feel like that already starts to shift so much. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's also, um, we can't discount the value of movement, the value of just being able to move so you can start to move those emotions and prana out of your body, right? And, mm -hmm. and move it just around your body in different ways. Um, acknowledging the emotions. There's nothing wrong with being angry. We have every right to be angry. There's a lot to be angry about. And so why not just put on a song, you know, some music and dance for five minutes and just express that anger in the dance, let it release, and then lay down, say your prayer and do your yoga nidra practice. What's your favorite technique, like when you're feeling angry? Uh, well, during the, the time when, um, right around the time when George Floyd was murdered, um, I actually had a, uh, a playlist that I would dance to every day with all the emotions. And the emotions could do be anything ranging from anger to um, sadness to laughing. And it was the same kind of um, emotions that I was finding myself having conversations with my girlfriends. And within a 30 to 40 minute conversation, there was this ebb and flow of all of these different emotions that would happen within a span of 40 minutes. And that was only because I was allowing myself and I was in a safe place with a trusted friend that we could, we could share these emotions and we could share them and release them and talk about them. And they would, they would ebb and flow. No emotion is going to be solid and consistent for the most part. There is some sort of ebb and flow around it. Um, and so if we acknowledge it and we um, speak to it and honor it, it will subside. 
if we pretend it's not there, it's going to just continue to grow because it won't have a space to release. So dancing um, is a really good one. <laughs> if you are loving this goddess as much as I do and you are desperate to learn with her and she's incredible, we have a workshop coming up this Saturday. So go to denanywhere.com. It's called Intro to Radiant Rest. It's going to be a path to deep relaxation and freedom. She's going to give you so many tools um, and practices on how to actually bring in deep relaxation into your daily lives, which as you're learning from this podcast is huge and so important and we could all use it. We're all such in like a go, 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 go mode. This workshop's going to be huge. Plus she is incredible and the master at this stuff. Um, so just so you know, the class is going to consist of lectures, practices, and Q&A. So you can learn and go as deep as you want. And again, it's this Saturday at 5 p.m. West Coast time, 8 p.m. East Coast time. Go to denanywhere.com and make sure you sign up. How how did you feel during um, with George Floyd as a teacher? Like, how was it as a Black woman and a teacher how did you handle or step into that? I could imagine, like you said, you you were ebb and flowing every five minutes of just your own emotions. But did you feel this responsibility to also have to hold space for others? You know, I didn't feel a responsibility. What I felt was an instant kind of call to action. Mm-hmm. And I was only able to answer that call because I was rested. Hmm. That's the only reason why I was able to answer that call. It's like, I felt like I got a message of, I know what's needed for, for the community of people that study and practice with me. And I'm rested enough that I can actually offer this at the same time that we can acknowledge our emotions and acknowledge how we feel and give space for that. Um, there were other things that happened during 2020 um, that, I was, I knew that I needed to rest, that I didn't have the bandwidth to be a teacher or share. And that that was time for me to hunker down and rest and rejuvenate. And I feel like if we listen, which is one of the things that Yoga Nidra helps us to do is to really listen, then we know what is ours to do and when. What are cues for you? Cues for me are, it's just a knowing. It's a knowing of this needs to be done. You're the one to to offer something like this, or this needs to be done. You're not the one (laughs) to do this. This is not dharmic for you, but maybe you have some other friends that maybe you tell them about this idea or make this offering, or you have a student who you think, you know, would be amazing at doing something. So it's really just about listening and honoring where you are. There's, there's no use in being ex- an exhausted teacher because mm-hmm. the teachings are not going to be uh, powerful. They're not going to transmit. And um, it's, it does, it's just not useful. I mean, it's so interesting that you said that you could make that distinction, that you felt rested at that time so you knew you could step up, but there were plenty of other times in all of this mess that you're like, it's not my time. No, it's time. It's time to rest and time to protect my space and time to have boundaries. And, you know, just like you were sharing about how people reacted to you saying that you do nothing. 
it's a very similar thing to notice how when someone asks something of you and you <clears throat> respond with, actually, I'm taking this period of time to rest um, and to nurture and to nest that I, and I'm sorry, but I can't do X, Y, and Z, what the reaction is. Really? And I think that we need to be more, um, if we give each other permission to be able to do that, um, then I think the world will be more rested and will be more um, able to just show up as our full selves and to honor other people when they need to rest and help them to protect their space to rest. It's true. And you can feel it because I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing online these live Instagrams. I was doing Fist of Anger, which is a Kriya in mm. Kundalini every morning, 6 a.m. And it was kind of like 6 a.m. to 6.30. The Kriya itself, it was only three minutes, the whole thing. But like I would talk and it was such a lovely community that got built through like the dens, you know, IG that every morning would show up and we would do it. And it was such a heavy time. Um, I mean, it went through George Floyd. I mean, it started in the beginning and we ended up doing it for 90 days. What I said, like, let's do it for four. We did it for 90 days but I could feel it the last like two weeks. Plus I was teaching and getting, shifting the den to get online. By those last two weeks, I remember being like, oh, yeah, I think I, I need a break. And I took a break, like we stopped doing the morning thing, but also I think I took a week or two off of teaching classes as well. I was like, I just need to rest. I could feel it. I was like, I'm starting to burn out. And I could tell as a teacher, then I was not going to be like you said, as effective um, and I just needed time to take care of myself. So it's interesting because I felt that same thing. I was like, okay, I need a breather. Um, and you do. And it's like amazing when you come back, you just feel so much like you're like, ready, I'm ready to go. You just feel like a whole different person. But talk about the power. You know, there's that one story in there about the woman, the Ogini woman who would go into her temple or to her cave every day at three. And people basically said she didn't sleep. And so I'm gathering from the story, she was going in to do her yoga nidra practice. So talk about that though. Like how much actual sleep was she getting or how much was it the power of the practice that was fueling her body and she was okay? Wow. Well, I, you know, I wish that I could answer that question. <laughs> and <laughs> because the thing is, is that, um, we only know her by the name Mataji. We don't actually know her name. Hmm. She's the mother teacher. We don't actually know this sage's name. This is the, the, the mother teacher that taught Swami Rama the practice of deep dreamless sleep and yoga nidra. So I don't know. My hope is one day I'll go to Kamakya to the temple and maybe I'll receive a teaching from someone who can give me more information. <laughs> That'd be amazing. But yeah. so, but it does bring you to the question of like, how, you know, everyone does talk about when you're more into your practice, when you're more, you know, connected, you need less physical sleep. What's your opinion on that? My, what I can tell you is my personal experience is that consistent yoga nidra for me allows me to require less sleep. It, you know, anywhere from three to four hours of sleep it is fine. It's not that I will get three to four hours of sleep because I'd like to make sure I'm in bed by a certain time and that I wake up by a certain time. Um, so most of my sleep is somewhere between um, six and eight hours um, because I also do nocturnal practices and dream practices and things like that. Um, but I wouldn't recommend because you know we we're in this society where 
the grind culture is always looking for a hack. Right. So That's true. I, I, I refrain a lot of times from, from even talking about the idea that you need less sleep because then I feel like people are like, okay, then I'm just gonna do this. Do this um, but there are stories, um, that some of the teachers have told about when, uh, I think Pandit Rajmani Tiganayat talks about a time when he was uh, studying for his PhD um, and he used yoga nidra as a way to compensate for lack of sleep, meaning that he would do, and I, I'm paraphrasing the story, so it might not be exact, but I think it was something like he would do yoga nidra um, and then he would only have like one or two hours of sleep a night. And yoga nidra was the thing that was able to keep him, um, you know, alert, awake, being able to do his program. Um, but it's not something that I would suggest for everyone because at that, you know, he's been a practitioner of yoga for many, many, many years, even by the time he was doing his PhD program. Yes. We're making the announcement now. This is not a replacement for sleep, not to be used purposefully for that, but it is always interesting to know that when you get deeper into your practice, how, because I can, I sometimes find it too. There was where I'm like, God, I'm not really sleeping that much and I'm fine. Like you feel Mm -hmm. it, like you're just naturally feel that you have this energy. It's not like you're fighting sleep. Um, it's really interesting. Um, but on that note, what we're talking about is what I love. You you hint at this a few times and you kind of talk about it overtly, but the power, the magic of yoga nidra basically being abused. And what I love is you were saying this is, you know, it's been passed down orally. It's an oral tradition. And so part of the reason that it was passed down orally is because they didn't want it to get in the hands of the wrong person, which I was like, ooh, stuff is getting good in here. Like they didn't want it to get in the hands of the wrong person because they didn't want it to be misused or abused. Talk a little bit about that because that kind of makes it feel like like it's almost in a a fun way, like this magic that if, you know, used with the wrong intention um, can be harmful. Well, that's the case really with all yoga practices. True. Many, many yogic practices, you know, are written, you'll find, oh, I want that magic mantra. Let me Google the mantra for blah, blah, blah. And you're going to Google a mantra that probably doesn't have a lot of Shakti, or if it's written in a book, it may have a certain syllable left out or a certain word left out um, because it's meant to be passed down through a tradition, through a lineage of, of teachers. And the reason why they're, they're passed down in the way they are is because the teacher is said to be able to know kind of when the student is ready to receive that level of teaching. Um, so I think it's really the same uh, with yoga nidra that there are some practices um, where, and, and there's also Buddhist practices as well that kind of overlap with these practices of yoga nidra where they, they're doing luminous yoga or sleep yoga or dream yoga um, in different stages. Um, But, you know, we have to respect and honor the teachings. Um, There are magical things that can happen. I've had um, students who've had experiences where they uh, connected with a person who was recently deceased. um, And then in the practices, the deeper practices of yoga nidra, it's said that you can connect with the consciousness of another person and that somehow 
some teachers are able to connect with their teachers that are no longer in body to continue receiving teachings. So there's so many different things um, that we don't even know about that are possible with these, um, you know, subtler practices of yoga. Do you, I mean, it's so true. And it is interesting how you said like so many mantras or whatever you look up, it's like giving someone a recipe. People don't always give the full recipe because they don't want them to have that that's full right. effect. <laughs> so that's interesting, actually really interesting. Um, plus I do feel like I know, especially in Kundalini, there's this idea, everything becomes very prescriptive, mm-hmm. you know, which I don't love. It's just like, oh, I'm going to sit here. Someone told me that I can make lots of money if I do this nonstop all the time. Um, or this mantra says I can attract the love of my life. So I'm going to do this now nonstop. And it becomes so prescriptive. It's like, well, if you do this, this will happen. If you feel like it does this, that sometimes I feel like not that there's not power in that stuff and not that it can't work. I'm not saying that, but I feel like you kind of sometimes lose the whole point of, if you actually just do the practice to go inward, a lot of that stuff will shift and happen on its own as well. True. But there's also the idea that there's, you know, an individual um, that has a unique kind of destiny and a unique set of circumstances that if given the correct prescriptive, uh, you know, yogic technology that things will shift a lot faster. Yes. Um, You know, it's like kind of the concept even of yoga therapy, right? It's not a one size fits all. It's basically like, oh, let me look at the individual and see, hopefully I have a tool bag that's big enough that I can actually pull the things that are needed. Um, And things can shift um, much more quickly. So, yeah. Yes. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, working from a lineage where someone knows versus people just pulling like through like the recipe box of this is what I want. Right. Exactly. Because the thing you want may not actually be the thing you need. And exactly. That, and, and, and that's the, that's the wisdom of, of a, of a real um, teacher, I think, is that you're able to step into a classroom um, and be able to offer s- students what they need as opposed to what they want. And then you can also, as a practitioner, be able to do the same for you. And that's where the practice of self-inquiry comes in. You know, you just let it perfectly. It was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because self-inquiry is a huge part of your book. Talk about why that is so important to go hand in hand with this journey. Well, because we, we receive so much wisdom and so much stillness after the practice, that it's the perfect time. I believe it's the perfect time to start to inquire. It's the perfect time to touch into the truth. It's the perfect time to free write. Um, so it's it's really like you're able to almost kind of download, you know, everything that you've been holding onto that previously you couldn't see, you know, cause you're so focused on the external again that you're not actually maybe even being able to touch into this. And I know, I mean, I've been doing self-inquiry practices after yoga and after meditations for so long. And what I hear from, from students and friends who do those practices is they just have these realizations or remembrances that are very, very profound. Yeah. It is amazing what can shift. I'm with you. I do it too. And I, I, 
try and get others to do it too. Cause I'm always like, this is the, how do you put this stuff into action of actually being here on earth with that physical body? Like how can we actually also in, in a weird way, it's, you know, everyone always talks about how the mind gets in the way. And I always feel like, well, that's a beautiful way to use the mind. Because, 100%. Yeah. I was like, it, it's, you know, everyone's like, well, the mind gets in the way. What's the point? It's like, no, but that's where, when you use it all together, it brings you to a whole nother dimension. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I included the self-inquiry questions in the book, because sometimes it's the question that prompts the truth to arise. They're questions that we might not ever ask ourselves. Okay, so don't forget that we have that workshop this Saturday. So go to denanywhere.com to sign up. You get a chance to learn from this amazing, incredible woman to get some of these tools in a much deeper way. And again, there's going to be lecture, there's going to be practice and an ability to have Q&A. I promise you, don't miss it. We are so, so, so lucky to have her. So again, go to denanywhere.com. See you this Saturday. What is a question that was ever asked of you that made you or that you saw that you were doing for self-inquiry that made you actually be like, oh yeah, I never would have asked myself that. And it really brought you somewhere different. One question that I was asked was, how are you careless? Hmm. Wow. My heart actually just hurt with that one. Yep. (laughs) Yep. That's when you know you have a good one. And, you know, a lot of times we get questions and we were like, I don't want to answer that. That's when you need to sit down and answer it. How are you careless? How are you forgetful? Yeah. And then you have to give it time, I'm sure, sometimes. Because there's probably a whole lot of stuff that doesn't come up first before it actually comes up. Yeah, I actually like to instruct people to um, write as fast as they can. So that it's almost like the heart is doing the writing as opposed to the mind. So not worrying about sentence structure, not worrying about grammar, just writing as fast as you can. Oh my and, God. you know, usually do like a three to five minute write. And there's a lot that comes up. Usually my experiences is that it comes up first, especially if you've done a deep practice of meditation or yoga nidra, it comes up first because it's, it's already kind of bubbled to the surface. That's so true. That's interesting. I mean, self-inquiry is huge because there is so much that we can learn about ourselves and that always just takes you further into the void. Yeah, takes you further into the void and closer into who you really are. How, what do you, what did you learn about yourself writing this book? Mm. What I learned about myself you know, a big part of the book is nature, is mm. connecting to nature um, and having this kind of realization that the rishis or the rishikas, the original seers of yoga, were doing these practices in nature and they were mimicking nature and they were having these downloads and realizations and that nature has the ability, if we spend time in nature, we have the ability to amplify the practices, to amplify the effect of the practices. Um, Because so many times we're being asked to 
see the sun and the moon and the stars and all these different things that we might not have a daily contact with all the time when we're living our lives. Um, and so for me, it was really the importance of continuing a relationship, a deep relationship with the land that I live on um, and the nature that is around me um, in a much deeper way than I had um, ever explored. How do you feel like you're interacting with it differently? Really just um, honoring on a daily basis. So honoring nature has just become part of my daily householder's flow of weaving. Well, do you, are you outside more? I mean, you had, you were always surrounded by nature. I'm always someone who was always connected to it. I'm always outside. Um, but really, uh, asking for more expansiveness is what I, what I realized I needed is more expansiveness, more ability, um, to see the stars every Mm -hmm. night as much Mm -hmm. as I could. Um, so that required, you know, a move, you know, being able to really be in deep, deep nature, which is available in LA, um, but not to the degree which I was feeling called. That it's so interesting. I mean, also, yeah, and stars when you're anywhere close to the center of LA or any city are going to be not as bright. It's just the nature of being near lights, that many lights. Um, versus I remember when I used to drive up to Mammoth, you'd be like, oh, it's just the magic of all of a sudden you're like, I can actually see the Milky Way. I mean, it's it's a whole yeah. different landscape. Yeah. And, and for me, nature and creativity are directly linked. Right. Right. And so I feel like um, being in more relationship, deeper relationship with nature allows me to be a better teacher, a better partner, um, a better creatrix, mm-hmm. you know, that um, there's lots of ideas and things that flow down. They're not all for me to do, um, but the ones that are for me to do, uh, I feel really inspired and, and supported um, when I'm in deep relationship with nature. How do you feel like just the pandemic alone for you and your partner? I mean, because I feel like it's such a crazy time. And I feel like people who are living with people, whether it be friends, whether it be a partnership, I love that you say you're beloved. um, How has it been for you? Do you feel like, because again, I think it's such a time where people are being called on, like there's a lot of change happening. And I feel like everyone's feeling it, whether you're fighting it and don't want anything to change or if you're trying to go with the flow, everyone, there's something within you that's being called to do something differently, whether it's happening to you or you're choosing to happen. So have you felt like you guys have been lucky enough where that change and flow has been symbiotic? You know, I am um, an introvert. So in the beginning, uh, for most of the pandemic, my uh, routine didn't really change much. Um, any classes that I was, or teacher trainings that I was teaching um, in person were already partially online. So being able to shift everything to fully online was okay. Um, We spend a lot of time together because we both work from home. 
So that, oh. that was already in place. It wasn't like, oh, you're suddenly in my space or I'm suddenly <laughs> in your space. Um, you know, I think that- You were primed for this. That it, so, for, so the pandemic didn't really um, have too much of a negative effect other than not being able to see our parents who are elderly. Same right? here. I mean, obviously we're FaceTiming, but it's not the same. Um, it's hard to make sure that people are okay. Um, so those there, there were those emotional challenges. And then um, with the uprising and with the recent, um, you know, insurrection and, and violence, um, there's always the emotions that, that play in and out. And not everyone is going to be in the same emotional place at the same time. So just being able to communicate and what I think has um, really helped our relationship is more communication, is, you know, expressing to each other how we're feeling in the moment and then being able to ask for whatever it is that we need, right? Because everything is so intense and intensified um, in every relationship, I feel like. Yep. Um, but what I've noticed in all of my relationships is that the ones that were anchored in truth and in compassion and in love and in mutual respect have flourished and gotten so much deeper. Hmm. And the ones that were not in alignment or were based on some sort of agenda um, have just fallen away. It's interesting. It's like spring closet cleaning naturally happening. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> for people yeah. in Malaysia. It's, this pandemic has shown us who people really are. Yeah. You know, and so we have the choice to to acknowledge who they are and decide whether we want to stay in relationship or if that is no longer in alignment. You're always such an inspiration. And, you know, I'm, I'm selfishly bummed we couldn't do this in person because I always enjoy actually sitting with you. <laughs> but this is lovely too. I want to do our four you's. So four quick questions for, with four quick answers yeah. um, before we wrap up and before you do a personal practice. But um, what has been your go-to savior thing that you've been using nonstop during the pandemic? Oh, yoga nidra for sure. I knew you were going to say that. I was like, yeah, I'll come that, up with a better question. <laughs> yoga, yoga nidra and chanting, actually. What's your, what I was going to ask you, we'll make this question too. What's your go-to chant? Because you do talk oh. a lot. You give a lot of mantras, which I, lo- I love chanting and I love mantras. So that I love how easily accessible they are in there, how you explain them, how at the end, it's literally like you could flip there and be like, I'm going to try this. So, but what's yours? Uh, my go-to chant is the Sri Suktam which is a chant that I've been doing for uh, quite a few years now. What is your, what food can you not live without? Oat milk. Oh, <laughs> no, I, put no, in, I, like I put it in everything. You do. My tea, my chai, my tonics. If there's no oat milk in the house or some sort of substitute milk, um, I'm in trouble. If you could live anywhere, no partner, no nothing, like it was just, you could literally put your finger anywhere, where would it be? I would go and live with family in Bermuda. Oh, That's where my family's from. So I would go, I would go to Bermuda. It's funny. I brought that up to Alec at one point because um, one of his best friends who I adore, who's like family now is from Bermuda. Um, and 
and I'm like, should we just go live with Nick? I'm like, can we go live with Nick? (laughs) I mean, I don't blame you. It sounds amazing. Um, Yeah. It doesn't give you the winner though, that I know your beloved needs. Right. But the question was without a partner. Yes, 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 absolutely. That's why I'm saying I get why you're not doing it. Um, But in the fantasy world, that is part. Do you guys go often? We haven't been in a while. Um, If we were both, if the partner was included in the question, we would be in Costa Rica. Oh, interesting. Why Costa Rica? We both love Costa Rica. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's another magical, expansive place that's full of nature and full of life and just so much beauty. So, so beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I love it there. Yeah, I get it. I love talking to you. I'm so unbelievably proud and press all of it. This book, it is radiant. So it, they picked the right title. It is a radiant book as well as talking about radiant rest. And again, I feel like anyone who reads this, you do not have to know anything about yoga nidra, or you can be someone who wants to dive so much deeper and really actually become a master in it. I, again, I'm so impressed with how you handled that um, and really could serve so many with one book, um, you. but you do. And it's again, not just with the stories, but also just the knowledge and understanding it. But I think no matter what you leave with this profound sense of how important rest is and this beautiful, as you say, I mean, I love how you say it's not a technique. It really, you know, embodies all of the yoga practice. Yes. It's a full system of yoga for sure. It's a full system. And I look, you're going through different layers, levels of consciousness. You're going through all these, I mean, it, it is, intense and beautiful and amazing all at the same time. And thank you for sharing that gift with everyone. I really- Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. And you're amazing. And stay tuned because we will have her personal practice. Thank you, Tracy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Please come to a comfortable resting position. So for you today, that might mean coming into Shavasana and lying on your back. It could be sideline, or you may want to come into crocodile pose on your belly. So over the next 60 to 90 seconds, just find that comfortable place where you can feel absolutely comfortable. Make sure that you have enough props. So you might want to take a bolster and place it under the knees, a rolled up blanket under the heels or the ankles, a cervical pillow under the head and a light scarf over the eyes. If you feel like you may get cold, make sure that you are covered with a blanket and that you have socks. Just allow yourself to have everything that you need to be perfectly comfortable. And as you begin to come into the space of comfort With each exhale, you just begin to settle a little bit more. And as you move 
into the place of settling, you start to allow yourself to just get rid of any last minute adjustments. Any last minute fidgeting or movement, just get it out of the way now. And then just begin to allow yourself to surrender into stillness. Allowing your body to just be completely still for the remainder of the practice. Now as you come into this place of stillness, just notice that the body is breathing. Feel the body lying on the earth. Notice the sounds in your environment. Allow your awareness to move to the furthest sound that you can possibly hear. And then just begin to allow your awareness to move from sound to sound to sound. Not judging any of the sounds. Just moving your awareness from sound to sound. And then just let all of the sounds in your environment just be there. Feeling as though you are in the center of a circle. And all of the sounds are on the circumference of the circle. Feel your body lying on the earth. And notice the parts of your body that are in contact with the earth. So feel the point of contact between your heels and the earth. Feel the parts of your legs that may be touching the earth. Feel the points of contact between your buttocks and the earth. Notice the parts of your back that are in contact with the earth. Feel the points of contact between your shoulders and the earth the back of your head and the earth. Just feel all the points of contact between your body and the earth. And notice that your body is breathing. 
As you feel the body exhaling, feel as though all those points of contact are just being weighted down by gravity. Each exhale is grounding you down into the earth. As you feel your body inhale, feel as though you can sense that the earth is rising up to hold and cradle your body. And as you exhale, you surrender into that hold and allow your body to ground into the earth. So over the next few breaths, Just feel the earth rising as you feel your body inhaling and feel the body surrendering, letting go into the arms of the earth as you exhale. beginning with the number 10, just begin to count your exhales backwards. Each time you count down a number, you just release a layer of constriction in the body, a layer of thought in the mind. Until by the time you get to zero, the mind and the body are completely free. If you lose your place in counting, just start back again at 10. Wherever you are in the counting, just let that go. And just allow yourself to completely let go. Let go even more.
and even more. Allow yourself to fully let go. We'll slowly begin to bring the quality of moonlight Imagining a immortal nectar from the moon that is nurturing, healing, and rejuvenating, being placed in the body. So I'll mention certain parts of your body and when I do, you can visualize a tiny full moon or even a drop of nectar, the color of moonlight dropping into the place that I mentioned. And you can mentally repeat the mantra, Soma, feeling as though you can place it in that place along with the nectar, the essence of moonlight, cooling, nurturing, and healing. So bring your awareness to your third eye point and sense this drop of nectar cooling and soothing the color of moonlight. Repeat the mantra, Soma. Now move to the pit of your throat. Drop of nectar, Soma. Right shoulder joint. Soma. Right elbow joint. Soma. Right wrist joint. Tip of the right thumb. Tip of the second finger. Tip of the third finger. Tip of the fourth finger. Tip of the pinky finger. Right wrist joint. Right elbow joint. Right shoulder joint. Pit of the throat. Left shoulder joint. 
left elbow joint, left wrist joint, tip of the left thumb, tip of the second finger, tip of the third finger, tip of the fourth finger, tip of the pinky finger, left wrist joint, soma, left elbow joint, left shoulder joint, hit of the throat, soma, center of the chest, deep behind the sternum, right nipple, left nipple, center of the chest, deep behind the sternum, soma, navel center, pelvic center, right hip joint, right knee joint, right ankle joint, tip of the right big toe, tip of the second toe, tip of the third toe, tip of the fourth toe, tip of the pinky toe, right ankle joint, right knee joint, right hip joint, pelvic center, left hip joint, left knee joint, left ankle joint, tip of the left big toe, tip of the second toe, tip of the third toe, tip of the fourth toe, tip of the pinky toe, left ankle joint, left knee joint, left hip joint, pelvic center, navel center, soma, center of the chest deep behind the sternum, soma, pit of the throat, Soma, third eye point, Soma, feel all of these points of nectar, the color of moonlight in the body soothing, cooling, 
nurturing and healing. Allow yourself to receive this healing nectar, feeling your entire body vibrating with the frequency of the mantra, Soma. Feel as though as you inhale, you are inhaling the vapors of the moon through both nostrils, and you sense and feel that the moon is rising, rising right in the space of the face until the whole face becomes a full moon. Sense and feel the entire face as a full moon. slowly move your awareness to the pit of your throat and see a full moon inside the pit of your throat, a full moon in the pit of your throat. Now slowly allow your awareness to rest 
the center of the chest, deep behind the sternum, in the cave of your heart. Now please just remember that you have a body. As you begin to deepen your breath, feel as though the breath moves out to all the extremities of your body. Feel the fingers, the toes, and slowly begin to move gently in your own way. Decide which side you would like to roll to, your left or your right. And just come into the fetal position. few moments on your own, you'll begin to make your way up. If you would like, now is a good time to take just five minutes to free journal anything that comes to mind. The practice is now complete. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edan, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, 
and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.